discussing spiritual warfare. So if you're here last week, we just kind of set the foundation to remind us all about the battle that we are in. And so this, this morning, we're going to actually get into uh, Ephesians 6. Here we're going to look at verses 10 through 20. And uh, Lord willing, start to squeeze in and talk about the individual pieces of the armor that God has graciously given to us. Uh, and again, as I go along, please feel free to ask questions and uh, comments that this is uh, not necessarily just a one-way conversation there. So with that, let's pray and we will get started. Lord, Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come here together to read and to study your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see what gracious gifts and what gracious tools and equipment you have given us to stand against our enemy. And that in and through the use and the putting on of these pieces of armor, that we can stand against the enemy, stand in the strength of your power and not our own. Remembering that the victory is in, in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to take to heart your words that would become more aware of this battle that we face, that we might be more eager and equipped and prepared to battle and to fight and to gain victory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We're going to look at the end of the book here, verses 10 through 20, which I'm sure you're probably all very familiar with. So Ephesians 6, verses 10, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and I'll read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So this morning, my goal is we're going to try and get through the, up to the first three pieces of armor, the um, belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of the gospel of peace. That's my plan. Now, whether we actually accomplish that might be a different story, because there's a lot of wonderful truths in here. And uh, even before we get into that, I think it's important that we, again, kind of set the foundation or the base of even what the book of Ephesians is about to kind of help us to remind us again of the importance of what Paul is telling us here. For this is uh, chapter 6, so this is the last chapter of the book, and this is the last half of chapter 6 in which he's kind of concluding and putting all that he's talked about in the first five chapters of Ephesians. Because he starts in verse 10 by one simple word, finally. So, as a conclusion of the book, there he's saying, look, finally, I'm at the end of, look, all that I've told you before then, this is what needs to be done. 
And so I thought it would be worthwhile just to take a few minutes, since we're already in the book of Ephesians, just to flip back and to remind ourselves of some of these truths of, that, of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us, so that when we look at be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, we remember and we know what He has done and what He's accomplished and what He is going to eventually do. So just uh, if you want to turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse 3, that's how Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing that there is to be able to live the Christian life. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we remind ourselves that we are chosen, that God chose us. Even before the foundation of the world, that we should be, and the goal is that we would be holy and blameless before him. Verse 7 In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That in Christ we are forgiven, all our sins are washed away and cleansed for all eternity. Verse 13, as if that isn't enough. And then verse 13, there's a wonderful promise here. Uh, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is our down payment, in a sense, that we are forgiven, that we have eternal life, and that we'll be in heaven forever. Verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that God, in his mercy, his great, rich, abundant mercy, because of the love that which he has loved us, has poured that out upon us. In verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is a precious gift of God, of salvation and forgiveness of sins. But wait, there's more. Verse, chapter 3, verse 12. And then, in whom, that is Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So in Christ, we should have no fear. We should be bold, as we'll see in the armor. There's no reason for us not to be strong in the Lord and to be bold and to proclaim his words and his truth. And we have access in and through Christ to God at all times, in any place, anywhere, anytime. That is in and all through Christ. And there's more, but... For time's sake, it can only cover so much. Um, and so that's just a reminder there before we launch into all that, he, that uh, God is going to tell us about the armor. We need to realize all that we've already been told about who we are, what we have, and the promises of God. And so he says, finally, in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So to be strong in the Lord means to be strengthened or be made powerful. And uh, I don't want to turn this into a Greek grammar lesson here, but it is this word is kind of important in that uh, it's in the passive voice in the original Greek, which means that something is, is acting on something, which means our strengthening is done from an outside source. So this tells us that we are not to look for ourselves for strength in spiritual warfare, that that strength comes, as it says, in and through the Lord. And the implication of being strong in the Lord means to maintain an ongoing awareness that the Lord Jesus Christ has an unlimited supply of strength for us, and we draw from that strength continually. If you have any doubt of the power of, of God, first all you got to do is look and see the universe around us that God created and controls everything each and every second. But also the ultimate display 
of God's power, of Christ's power, is displayed through his resurrection and ascension and exaltation into heaven. And so we should have that ongoing awareness of who God is and who Christ is and the power that is in Christ. Because uh, I believe many problems we have is that we think that we can handle the warfare by ourselves, right? We think we are strong in our own might. And I think this verse, verse 10, is very foundational in that it sets up the rest of what we need that, let's see, how can I say this? It sets up how and the importance of why we need to put the armor of God on because in and of ourselves we're not strength. We have no strength. That there are three implications there in verse 12 that I think are very important that we realize. The first one is the Christian has need of strength. That's implied that the, number one is the Christian has need of strength. I think sometimes we have a tendency as Christians sometimes to, when things are going well, we like to boast in our strength. And that uh, we look to the Apostle Paul who wrote this. You would think that of all the people that would boast about how strong they were, that he would be the one that would do that. We think about all that he accomplished, all that he did, churches planted, the writing, how God used them with uh, the writing of the New Testament, reaching out to the Gentiles. But no, Paul never boasted of his strength, right? What did he boast of? His weakness. Paul was always eager to boast about his weakness. 2 Corinthians 11.30 says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That Paul knew that he wasn't able in and of himself to accomplish or do anything. 2 Corinthians uh, Chapter 12, verse 9, this is a reference where he talks about the thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Yeah. If, uh, if you want to go back a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think there's also a a good verse, a couple of verses there that remind us again of even in our proclamation of the, the gospel, it's not us, but it's the power of God. So 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 3 through 5, and Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think the first step here is spiritual warfare is that we gladly admit our weaknesses and our desperation and our helplessness, that then we're much more eager then to look, look to God. And we have Paul who boasts of his weakness, but can you think of any particular uh, instance or, I'll give you a hint, apostle who boasted of his strength and had a, had a great fall? Peter, right? Think about Peter just before Christ was arrested, right? He came and Christ told him all that was going to happen. And there in Matthew, Peter's boasting. He says, Lord, in verse 30, uh, chapter 26, verse 35 of Matthew, he says, Lord, even if I must die, I will not deny you. Right? He's pretty much boasting, look, I'm going to stand by you, all about his strength and who he is. But you know what's also interesting? We always pick on Peter, right? Because he's the, kind of the spokesman and stands out above the others. But the rest of the verse says, and all the disciples said the same that it wasn't just Peter, that we forget that the disciples ran and fled as well too. So they were all boasting in their strength. And what eventually happened, right? Peter denied Christ before a few servant girls. And uh, if you read the book of Mark, I had to go back just to make sure I wasn't making it up. But it's true that uh, it even says Mark wrote about himself, said that he fled and he was such a hurry to flee that they ripped his clothes off and he fled away naked. I mean, how strong is that? Not very strong, right? And so we see the, 
the comparison too, right? Paul who boasted in his weakness and look how useful in all the things that he did through God. Look at what happened to Peter and disciples were boasting in their strength. Lord, I'll be with you. And then ultimately what happened to them? Obviously, God came back and restored them, but we see what happens when we tend to think that we are strong and can handle things and do things in our own strength, in our own power. So number two, the other implication of verse 10 is that the Christian has no strength in himself. We are dependent and should be dependent on God for everything. Even think about our salvation, right? Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't even save ourselves. If God hadn't done something, we would never have got salvation. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Right? Because only God is adequate to empower us to do his work. If we are called to do his work, he will give us the strength if we look to him. Uh, the third one is, third implication is, there is sufficiency for Christians in Christ. There is sufficiency for Christians in Christ. Think of Christ we, who controlled nature, controlled the demons, healed diseases, gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, made the lame walk, raised the dead. And that Matthew 28, 18 says, Christ has authority on heaven and earth, and that he is with us to the end of the ages, which includes even salvation. So in and through Christ, in his power, we can be sufficient, even, through, even for salvation. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. But we need to remember, too, that the enemy that we face, Christ has defeated. That he has victory and has defeated the enemy. Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So then our position for spiritual weakness then is standing in Christ. And in standing in Christ then that posture from that position boasts of our weakness. Our weakness that learns of and leans on Christ's victory and Christ's strength. So first we need to admit that we are weak and that we need help and then we can turn our eyes to Christ. So then verse 11, any questions, comments? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we see here the way we become strong in the Lord is to put on the whole armor of God. So there then is a conscious decision to put it on. Though God has graciously given to us, if it's there and it's laying in a pile and we're here, what good does that armor do, do for us? Nothing, right? Go back to the soldier in battle there. If he's got a rifle and he goes to the front lines and he leaves his rifle in his tent, what good is he, right? Even though he's equipped with it, he never carries it and doesn't use it. It's, it's useless. It's worthless. And notice, too, he says, put on the partial armor, most of the armor, almost all of the armor. No, he says, put on the whole armor. I'm going to skip ahead, but it's not the first time that he tells us. It's the first time he tells us, but not the last time. Later on, he's always going to remind us again there in uh, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So there's twice in a couple verses he tells us to remind us, right, to put on the whole armor that we need it all, um, that we need to put on every single piece that he has given us. And the purpose is to stand against the schemes of the devil, his clever disguises, his lies, his deceptions, his false doctrines and teaching, the world system that we're in that he uses then to 
try and make us stumble and trip, that only in and then, when we put on the whole armor, are we able to stand then against the devil. And that we are to stand, uh, to hold what means to hold one's position continually. It, su it suggests a soldier firm and steady while under attack. So then if we're standing firm, it also kind of has the implication so that if we are standing against the devil, guess what? We're probably going to be under attack, which is why we need the armor on. There might be lulls in the battle, but that's not the time to take it off. That's the time to continue to keep it on. Let's see. By standing, we are resisting against the enemy, upright, ready, and engaged in battle. If you're standing, you're ready. You're ready to go. You're ready to go and do whatever that needs to be done, whatever the Lord calls you to do. And as commanded elsewhere in Scripture, a person who has put on the whole armor of God is now able to resist as he should. Here's a familiar verse we, we read last week, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we need to put on, be conscious and aware and be diligent and intentional about putting on that whole armor. Because as it says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So notice he says wrestle, right, which is close quarters, up close, and personal combat. Anybody wrestle in high school or college or anything? Anybody wrestle your brother? Maybe you wrestled your sister, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> um, but it's intense, right? If you wrestle somebody, it's hard work. It's very personal. You're there, you're grabbing, you're sweating, you're feeling their breath and their sweat and all that. It's Hard, intense work, not like the WWE that we see out here, right? That's, that's fake wrestling, right? Um, but it's real. So it implies that there is, it's going to be very intense and personal in this, in this battle. And as a reminder, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. So no matter what you think, your spouse or your children, your co-workers, your friends, your fellow brothers and sisters here. They are not your enemy. They might possibly be pawns or tools of the enemy, but they are not your enemy. They are not the real enemy that you are fighting. And so when he tells us, when God tells us about this, about the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, it just reminds us that it is not a physical army that we are facing. It's not a physical battle, right? We can't even see them, right? As we talked about, we can't even see the, the angels and the demons that are out here. There, who knows? There could be many right now as we speak, but we can't see them. So it tells us that, that it is a spiritual army, therefore, a spiritual battle, therefore, it implies we need spiritual weapons. Second uh, Corinthians, let's get back up two books to Second Corinthians Chapter 10. I'm going to read a look at verses um, 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not raging war against according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So you see, it's a spiritual battle. You can't destroy arguments with hammers and chisels and all that stuff. It's spiritual. And so we are not unarmed, right? God has graciously given us his word and the whole armor as we're going to get into to be able to fight the spiritual battle. And as Paul says, reminds us, rulers, authorities, cosmic power, spiritual forces, to kind of remind us that there is a organization, a hierarchy, that, the, that 
the enemy is organized, that it's not just random stuff going on, that he has a plan and a purpose. He has his people or demons that he uses in a certain way, shape, and manner. Uh, you know, I've read a couple of books that tried to get into, uh, you know, spiritual forces are this, rulers are this, um, but it's not really clear in Scripture. We just need to know that, you know what, they're out there, that he's organized, and that there is a purpose and a plan to what he is doing. And so then also that, um, that they are very real. It reminds us also, too, that they are very powerful, that they are, they are demons, but remember they're fallen angels, and angels are very strong, very powerful, um, more powerful than any of us. When you think about angels, they're quite grand and majestic and great splendor. And uh, if you think about John, the, the Apostle John, right, he wrote all those books. The, the Gospel is three books and then Revelation. So clearly we know that John loved Jesus Christ. It was very clear. And he knew, and he knew to worship God and God alone, but yet what happens when he sees the angels in the book of Revelation? Does anyone remember? He falls down in front of them, right? He, he starts to worship them. The angel's like, no, 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 get up, get up. You're not to worship me. You're not to worship, worship me. So that kind of tells you that um, even though we know we shouldn't do that, I think that tells us, it reminds us of just how far above the angels are and how powerful and strong that they are, and then tells us how weak we are compared to the angels that once more should point us to Christ and not to our own strength, that we would fail miserably. Um, so verse 13 then, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So verse 13 starts off with the therefore, just to kind of remind us, as Paul said in the last verse there, that we are, therefore, since we face a powerful and strong enemy, therefore, and what's he say again? Take up the partial, almost all, just a couple pieces. No, he says the whole armor. We need the whole armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. Um, Right? And as it says here, the goal of taking up the armor is to withstand or oppose or stand firm in the evil day. That we are in the evil day right now. Since the fall of man, we are in that evil day, in the which is the current times. And he says that when we are able to do that, then we are able to stand. And that is the recurring theme throughout these verses here. Four times he says in these verses that we are to stand or withstand. In verse 11, verse 13 twice, verse 14, the whole goal is to stand. And I don't know about you, but when I kind of think about this, I think, wait a minute, I'm putting on all this, arm, all this armor, you know, I want to be aggressive. I want to go out there and I want to go and advance and go out against the enemy and do all those things. I got the sword, right? Ah, I'm on attack and be on the offensive. But isn't it interesting that God tells us, stand. Stand. We do all this to be able to stand. Because the soldier is most effective when he stands. If he's laying down or sitting or can't do much, right? But if you're standing, right, you're ready. You're ready to go and to do as the Lord commands. We're not to go out. And when you're standing, you're not going out. You're not chasing anyone. You're not chasing the enemy. You're just standing firm, ready to engage in the fight, in the battle. Standing is active and implies readiness, eagerness, and alertness. And you know what? It takes effort to stand. I know we live here in North Texas, and I lived up in Oklahoma. Anyone try to stand against some of those winds that are out there? Anybody had the pleasure of being somewhere close to a hurricane and had hurricane or tornado winds? Is it easy or is it hard to stand? It's hard to stand. It's hard to stand against the wind. Who likes to go to the ocean? Come on, all you Texans, you got the, you got the ocean. You got to love the ocean. That's great. You go into the ocean, right? You got those big waves. How easy it is to stand against some of those waves. You got to put a lot of effort in there. 
Don't forget there's an undertow sometimes that comes in there. And just to stand, if you're not careful, if you're not watching yourself, it's very easy for it to knock, knock you out, knock you down onto your feet, and you've got to get yourself up again. So there is a lot of energy and effort and determination to be able to stand. And it reminds us again, in order to stand then, that we, are, we need to stand because we are at war, that we are a soldier on the spiritual battlefield every day. Every day we must be ready. That's why we, you notice he says, put it on. You never hear him say, take it off, right? Once we put it on, it should be on all the time. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about a Christian in spiritual warfare. He said, you are always on duty in the Christian life. You can never relax. There is no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. That there's no holiday, there's no Sabbath. That every day, more likely than not, as soon as you relax and take off that armor, right, here, here it comes. So we're always to be prepared. And with the whole armor of God on, we need to stand and fight and not fear the enemy and run away from the battle. And I thought this was a pretty uh, kind of visual thing for me. What Charles Simeon says in his book, uh, The Christian, His Conflict, and His Armor, says, if we fight, we have nothing to fear. It is only when we turn our back that we are left exposed to any mortal injury. In every other part, we are armed sufficiently for our defense. Right? So if we're standing, we're facing the enemy, we have our armor on, but the minute we turn our backs, right? Now what kind of defense do we have? Right? We're at the enemy's um, mercy there, right? If you're in battle, bullets, arrows at the time, whatever is coming, you have no clue what is coming, right? But because God has given us all this, we shouldn't be afraid to fight. We shouldn't fear. And so finally, we come to the first piece of armor. And I don't think we're going to finish. We'll see. So the first one, verse 14. Any questions, comments? Go ahead. Right, because we're resting and we're trusting in him. That he would take all that. So we're looking to him. And it is because when he takes that burden from us. I mean, as you see there, that there's not stuff that we're not supposed to do. And we're not supposed to be the... Um, what, what does it say? Let go and let God type of thing. Like, I'm just going to, like, here you go, God, I'm going to do it. But, you know, he gives us the armor, but if you use armor, right, you have to use the armor. It doesn't do you any good to be dressed up in it and just walk around and never use it. You know, if there's an arrow coming for you and you leave your shield down here, it doesn't do any good, right? So, so yeah, so we would rest and we would trust and, and give it to him. So that's a good question. Yes? Exodus 14.14. 14. I guess let's turn to your Bibles to Exodus 14.14. 14. And do you remember? But that, can you give us a... Exodus 14.14. So I'll read it so everyone knows here. So Exodus 14.14. So it says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. So again, I think that goes back to that um, we trust in the Lord. That he will fight for you, but are we coming to him and looking to him and asking him to do all that to fight for us? This passage here is talking about physically enemy. Good point. He said, I don't know if you heard him, he said he's talking about fighting a physical enemy. But as we said, what, who, what, what kind of battle are we fighting? It's a spiritual battle too. So there is a little bit of difference there. Thank you. That was a good point. Anything else? And now is verse 13. 
And so verse 13 said, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, for which he will work for you today. Excuse me. For the, <clears throat> for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Uh, but again, but as Roger said, we're talking, it's a physical, physical battle. But still, physical or spiritual, who's going to do our fight for us? The Lord, right? We're going to do the book of Joshua. And as Pastor Keith was talking about, whose battle did he remind the Israelites it was, ultimately? It was the Lord's, right? It was the Lord's battle. And though the Israelites still had to go out and fight, it was the Lord who was going to give them the victory. And I think it's the same concept with our spiritual battles as well, too. So that is the Lord's victory. However, we are called then to obey and do things that the Lord has called us to. Is it that bad? Thank you. <laughs> so the first piece of armor then, going to uh, verse 14. Let me get back here. Uh, uh, just to read again. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So again, the reminder to stand, to be ready, to be prepared, and again, the command to fasten or to put on the belt. That we have it again, but we must put it on. And uh, I counted between verses 11 and 17 where he talks specifically about the, the whole armor of God. That seven times, seven times the Lord tells us, either put on, take up, fasten, or something, I think for every piece of armor that he says, put it on, put it on, put it on, put it on. So we need to put it on. And so the belt of truth here. So the standard form of dress in the ancient world for the Jews as well as for the Romans was a robe. So imagine a soldier trying to move quickly and deftly in battle with a robe on. So ladies, you would probably maybe understand this a little bit better with your long dresses. You're probably not very agile or move fast with all the long flowing garments. So what they did was, uh, when it's time to go into battles, the soldiers would pull those robes up above their knees and gather the folds of the robe tightly around their waists with the, with the heavy belt, which means that they are then ready and prepared to fight and to go into action. And is the belt of truth. So where is the belt centered on a person? Up there. Right? Their waist, right? The belt is central, right? As it's the center of the body, so also then truth must be central in our lives. And so it's a reminder then that with that belt of truth, then we should be hanging on every single word of God, as well as with the belt, too. Soldiers there, even today, they hang their weapons from the belt as well, too. So the belt is, has a useful function, as we're going to see later on when we talk about the sword of the Spirit. Um, to hang the weapons and keep everything all together. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the belt of truth then refers not only readiness and, and for battle, for action, but the belt of truth refers to the truth of God as revealed in his word and living uprightly because we have been saved by those truths. So James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So I think here with the belt of truth there, we're talking about two types or categories of, of truth there. So the first one is, I think you have a blank there, objective truth. Objective truth. So daily, one should be studying God's word. Therefore, you can understand and submit to its truth. Regularly and consistently, we should be reading and studying, meditating, even memorizing God's word so that we can understand God's truth. Then and, then and in and through God's word, we can be strengthened against false doctrines and teachings and the lies of the enemy. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then Psalm 119.11, I, I love this one. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And how do you store up God's word? You got to read it and take it in, right? That's the only way you can store it up. And so Christians, if they're going to fall, tend to fall at this point because they try and use their own wisdom or the world's wisdom to stand against the schemes of the devils because many times they might be not aware or ignorant. They just don't know God's truth and there might be complacency. They just have not taken the time to read and study and apply God's word. And to help to be strong in the Lord and to stand against the enemy, we need to be strong in God's word. And who's our great example to show us of how to stand against the enemy using God's word? Jesus, right? right? Jesus used the scriptures to defend himself, and he was strong in the Lord when he was tempted by Satan there. But not only did he know the scriptures, but what was really key about, about it, he believed the scriptures. Not only did he know them, but he believed them too. So we not only have to read and understand, but we actually believe in all that God says. And that is objective truth. Second one, second part would be subjective truth. So we know, we read, we understand, we store up God's word. Then what are we to do with it? As we talked about in James, being not just, do, not just hearers, but doers of the word. We are to live out the commands of the scriptures and the demands of the gospel. That is subjective truth. So that we should strive to walk daily in God's truth. Daily, as we put on the whole armor every day, then we should also strive to walk daily in God's truth. Because when we disobey God, right, then we give the enemy an opportunity to bring us harm, that we make it much, that much easier for him to attack. Uh, Brian Borgman and Rob Ventura say in their book, Spiritual Warfare, which if you, if you ever have a chance or opportunity to get the book, it's a small book. I don't think it's real expensive. It's actually a really good book, and it goes into a lot more depth and details uh, than I have time for, but it's very well written, and I recommend it. Uh, it says uh, in their book there, you must be on guard. Personal sin will cause you to stumble, dishonor God, and lose great blessings in your life. The devil will use your sin to make you miserable and ineffectual. And that's true. When we lead lies and we go into personal sin, what happens? Bad things, right? We'll just say that. Not good things. And our greatest, again, one of our examples, we look from the Bible, let someone let personal sin affect their life, made them stumble miserably and make, made them, in a sense, become ineffective, was if you think about King David, Right? Think about all the things that he did before that, those sins with Bathsheba and um, committing adultery and murder. And then look at his life after that. He had all these things, and then he, he did some of this stuff, right, from the good things. But then you look at all the, think about all the stuff that happened with his family and his children and all that because of personal sin. Um, so here's my preaching moment. So... Brothers and sisters, if you are playing in sin, stop, repent, turn away from it. It's going to bring destruction. It's going to give the enemy an opportunity, and you will do more damage and hurt your witness, even dishonor Christ. So turn away from it. It's serious. That's why God has given us the whole armor. And and may give you a truth to remind you about that. If the belt of truth is supposed to be central, here's a central truth we should remember in that with sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even God, as we said, is rich in mercy and grace, but we must ask for forgiveness. So we are in a battle. It is a spiritual battleground every day, but God has equipped us with the truth. But, as we said, you need to spend time to read and study and obey God's word. And, you know what? It's just hard work. It's just you have to be disciplined and devoted. 
Uh, you could take time to mow your lawn every week and make time for that. Well, certainly then you can take time to be disciplined to read and take in God's Word. Because it, it just, you just have to do it. There's no way about it. It just doesn't happen. You don't just stare at the Bible. and God's Word just naturally soaks into your, to you. You have to read it and study it. Because reading and studying the Scriptures is just not for pastors and teachers, but it's for everyone. It's for all Christians. We should all be reading the Bible. And God reminds us in the Psalms about the power of his word, Psalm 19:7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So then, the belt of truth is then a commitment then of being ready, symbolizes being ready and eager to stand, to fight, but also then saturating our minds with God's word and this truth that would be central to our lives, and then also then living it out. Now, William Grinnell in his book, The Whole Armor of God, which is, if you have time to read it, I think it's 1,200, 1,400 pages, something like that. Um, yeah, I got a really long flight, I guess. You can take that. Uh, but it's an excellent book. I, I actually do highly encourage you to read it. And he says here in his book, The Whole Armor of God, he gives us two pieces of advice on how a Christian may desire or may cultivate a desire for the truth. And first he says, <clears throat> we should labor to get a heart inflamed with a sincere love to the truth. And like as I said before, it's hard work. It's labor. And we have to do it. We have to be committed to do it. And only in that way then can our hearts conceive. Because I know, I don't know about you, but when I do take the time, and I probably I think you all would agree, to study and dig into God's word, you're just amazed. And you just feel like you're fed and your soul is stronger and healthier. You just can't help but be amazed at God and all that he has done. And the more you read his word, the more you see how his word all comes together in perfect in perfection and uh, how that we can trust and rest in his truth. Um, and then second, to a heart inflamed with the love of truth, then guess what? We have to, he says we need to labor <laughs> to add a heart with the fear of that wrath which God hath in store for all that apostatize from the truth that we always talk about. We're very eager to talk about God is love, God is merciful, God is graceful. But let us not forget also that God is a God of wrath and that we should fear God. And I'm not necessarily maybe scared and sheltered, but there should be a reverence, right? Worship, the fear of him. Right? Because what does the Bible say? Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And Luke 12, 5 reminds us a little bit about God's wrath there. And who, and really reminds us whom we really should fear. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So it is God alone that has authority over eternity. Not the devil, not the world, not your neighbor, not anyone else. So then we should fear God and ignore everyone else. That we should put our focus and trust in God. And that is the belt of truth. Yes, question. So, okay, so, so let me paraphrase the question so everyone can hear. So she was saying the Ten Commandments. Say that again so I get it right. As a former Catholic, She's a former Catholic. The Ten Commandments are the only commandments that I know if I disobey, I sin. So she says, she, those are, says a Catholic, those are the only things that she knows is the Ten Commandments. So she knows that if she disobeys them, she sins. Okay, but if I do not pray as is 
unceasing. So she says, so if I don't rejoice in the Lord or pray unceasingly, then do I sin? What do you guys think? So I would say that, yes, I mean, I would see, I, would, I think that pretty much everything that we do would be tainted by sin, right? Because though we're washed and we're cleansed, we still have the flesh in us. And so, but like as she said, right, God is merciful, God is graceful, that we do, we do try, we do try to obey all his commands, right? And we do the best that we can. And I think that, you know, when we know that we fail, as we read there, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is right to forgive us. So I don't think we should be living in a fear like, oh, if I don't do this, I don't do that, right? right? But we should be live, you know, as, the, as it says, an awareness of, of Christ, the awareness of God, and that as we, as we go about our day, then we are trying to obey God in all that we do, right? So because it's not a works-based Christianity, right, is not works-based like the Catholics, right? If you don't, you got to confess your sins to earn your righteousness and all that, whereas we don't have to earn our righteousness anymore, that God, that is graciously given to us. But we do these things then in order to tell God that we love him and we obey him and we trust him. Because if we love him, right, we will obey his commands. But so does that... They don't. You're right. Right. So they think everything is a sin. So that's why they come and they do the confession and they do all those things. But you never... You never can. You can never be earn your way into heaven, and that's the problem with the Catholic religion. So it's only in and through Christ and Christ alone. You know what? I would love to answer your questions, but it's 10 o'clock. And um, we have to, I got to close in prayer so that, is there announcements? Someone were announcements today?